Join with me this morning in turning to the book of Ephesians. Our reading today is going to come from Ephesians chapter 2. If you'll open your Bibles there and follow along with me, I'm going to be reading verses 11 through 22. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 22. Let us joyfully hear God's word today. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those of you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This ends the reading of God's holy word. May he write his truths on our hearts today. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, what a great joy it is for us to be able to assemble in your name and to read your word. And what a great moment it is of joy and anticipation as we listen for your voice and how we pray father that you would come and speak to us now we thank you for the spirit that has been sent into the world for your church to lead us and guide us into the truth and we pray that we would be led as such this morning we pray that you would bless this time father as we come we we're thankful for those who uh, are a part of our fellowship but who could not be here for various reasons. And we, we pray for your blessing upon them. We pray for your protection. We pray for, for healing mercy for those who are ill. We pray, Father, for the, the blessing of, of you upon our missionaries. We pray for the success of the gospel wherever they may be. We pray that you would provide everything they need. Lord, we pray for open hearts as they preach and teach your word. Lord, we pray for your blessing on everything that we do here today. 
And now join with me as we pray together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. What a joy it is for us to be gathered here today on the Lord's Day, a, a day set aside, a time set aside by the Lord for us to do what we're doing here. And so as we gather, we're going to, to worship and sing and pray and read and listen to the Lord speak to His people today. We're going to, to give and, and share with one another and those who have needs. We're going to eat together and participate in fellowship and encourage one another. All of what I have just described and more is what the church does when it comes together. And what we're witnessing here today and every time we come together is the fulfillment of our Lord Jesus when he said these words, I will build my church. And we're proof of that, aren't we? I find it interesting that Jesus uses the word that he uses there when he makes that statement, I will build my church. Now, when you hear that word, perhaps you get an idea of a, of a house or some kind of building being constructed piece by piece, right? There's a, a structure that's being built, at least that's what comes to mind, and what we must understand is this is exactly what Jesus is doing. A physical structure? No. Something better. Something spiritual. When we talk about the work of our Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel, we rightly emphasize His atoning sacrifice for our sins and His work of praying for the church and calling and cleansing and protecting and so on and so forth. We could go on, but let us not forget that the Lord Jesus is building. He is creating, building his church. And the picture so often given of the Lord's church in Scripture is that of a temple. As we look today to Ephesians chapter 2, I want us to consider some implications of what it means to be this new temple that Jesus is building. Now, I didn't read these verses, but I want you to just look ahead with me, if you will, uh, up in chapter 3. It says there in verse 13, So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. And then down to verse 21 of chapter 3, To him, that is God the Father, be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. In these two verses here in close proximity, we see Jesus mentioning the glory of the church. And so I want to ask you today, how is it that the church can be considered glorious? And secondly, I want to ask, 
are you a part of this glorious church that Jesus is building? Well, I want to begin this morning by considering the temple as given to us in the Old Testament as a pattern, the temple as pattern. I think many of you will be familiar with uh, the earlier part of Ephesians 2. That's a very well-known section of Scripture, isn't it? Ephesians chapter 2 that talks about how we were dead in our trespasses and sins and God made us alive together with Christ. And the emphasis there is what? Grace and faith. Amen? And then at the end, we, the, the implications of this, this salvation, this new creation, Paul uses a word that's translated in our English Bibles as workmanship. That's a, a word that is close to the idea of creation. That is that God is doing a new creation. Now the, the focus here is not on creation as an act of God in which he speaks and things come into existence. Now we don't deny that. But what is being pictured here in this idea of workmanship is the, the days of creation where God speaks and new things are created and things are built one on top of another so that we have the universe that we have now. In a similar way, Paul says that this is what Jesus is doing. In other words, this is not just about your individual salvation. We Americans are notorious for, I don't know if this is a word, individualizing things, aren't we? Everything's about us. But what I want us to do is to look at these verses here in 11 through 22, and I think that this is Paul's unpacking of this word workmanship, and I want us to see what he's trying to say here with regard to this new temple that is being built by Jesus. Now, some have stated that what Paul is talking about here is uh, that the church is like the temple, that we see some comparisons in this new temple and the old temple, but I am contending that what Paul is saying is that the church is the new temple. Let me even suggest the real temple, the eternal temple. <laughs> Now, we know that he's talking about a temple. It's explicit in verse 21, right? There he, he says that we're being built into a holy temple. So, so we don't have to question that, but I think that way before we get down to verse 21, there are hints here that show us that the church is not just similar, but is in fact the fulfillment of something patterned in the Old Testament. I, I want to begin by pointing you to a contrast, and it's a contrast of times. We'll refer this as the then and now. Then and now. Uh, notice, if you will, in verse 11, uh, he writes there, Therefore remember that at one time, and then in verse 12, Remember that you were at that time. And so there's a reference to the past, right? You see this reference to the past? But then notice the contrast in verse 13. But now, we have a then, and we have a now. And then we also see this referenced in verse 19. So then you are no longer, okay, presently, 
and moving into the future. So there's a contrast. Does everybody see this? Everybody following? This is Paul basically using a, a phrase that we use today. That was then, but this is now. Okay? So we might ask, well, what does this contrast refer to? Well, some, again, the individualizing of it would say, well, he's talking about our own personal salvation. There was a time when I wasn't saved. And so he's talking about, you know, back then before I was saved, but now that I am saved, okay, now it's different. And that's not what he's talking about. Paul is speaking here historically. Uh, really, uh, uh, he's speaking, and I'm going to throw out a term here that's kind of big and kind of long, but it's a term that you need to, to be familiar with. He's speaking redemptive historically. Paul the Apostle doesn't look at history as someone who is, uh, say, a secularist. We just look back at dates and places and times and, and wars. No, he sees history as the unfolding of the plan of God. Redemptive history and the person who divides the, the times between the back then and the now is Jesus. So Paul is referring to this time before Christ and the time after. So he's looking back, right? He's looking back. He's referencing a, 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 a time in the past and particularly the time under the old covenant when there was an old temple. And this old temple was a pattern. Now we know this because Paul refers to that time as the time of the flesh. Do you see that there? In verse 11, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Now, when you and I hear that word flesh, we might think of skin, right? Well, that's not all of, of what Paul is trying to convey here. He's not just talking about human skin. This term here that he's using is another contrast word. We've got this, this word, this idea of flesh. What's it contrasted with? Well, it's contrasted with the idea of spirit. And we see that in our text, don't we? Down to verse 18. For through him we both have access in one spirit. So there's a contrast here between the flesh and the spirit. And what Paul is doing is he's taking us back to the time of the Old Covenant and, and the Old Testament when there was a physical temple it was built in Jerusalem. And that temple for the ancient Israelites was the center of life, the center of, of worship. That was where they gathered. It was where they met God. It was where God revealed himself to them. His, his presence was manifested there in that temple. It was his glory that they saw in the temple. Solomon built and then dedicated this temple. And we read about this in 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. It says, And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Can you picture that? Can you imagine that? Such overwhelming glory. You know, what do you think of when you think of glory? You think of brightness, right? 
We're also told that it was a cloud. Uh, we see the same thing in the story of the transfiguration of Jesus, right? There's a cloud, but there's brightness. Hard for us to imagine. But this is what they saw. Now, if you were to imagine that temple, or I'll tell you what, let's use Herod's temple, because that would have been probably something that some in Paul's audience may have actually seen. If you think about Herod's temple, which was patterned on Solomon's temple, uh, you would have uh, had this. First, you have in the middle the temple proper, and that is the holy place and the holy of holies. Only the priests can go there. And then outside that, you had a courtyard where consecrated Jewish men could go. Then beyond that, another courtyard called the Court of Women. And then there was another wall, and each one of these courtyards have walls. Then there's another wall, and then there is a humongous courtyard called the Court of the Gentiles. And according to the Jewish historian Josephus, there were signs posted along that wall that threatened any Gentile who tried to cross over into the temple area with death. There's a story about Paul who is accused of doing this in the book of Acts. If you remember, he takes someone into the temple area who they think is a Gentile. And interestingly enough, that person was from Ephesus. <laughs> so we understand, based on this idea of the, the centrality of the temple in the life of the Jews and, and this wall that separated Jew and Gentile, we understand, don't we, why Paul refers in verse 14 to this wall as the dividing wall of hostility, don't we? Well, what did this wall mean? Well, it meant alienation. Alienation. Separation because these Gentiles were uncircumcised. They could not come into the, the temple area. They could not see the presence of God, the manifestation of the glory of God. And so he says in verse 12 that you were separated from Messiah, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. What a, what a dismal state if you're a Gentile, right? You can't get over that barrier. You can't come into the presence of God. There's alienation. There's separation. There's no hope. Now, as we know, this is not just the case of the Gentiles, is it? Because... You can't just be circumcised and be right with God, can you? You can't just be a Jew by birth and be right with God. It doesn't work that way. That's part of the argument in the earlier parts of Ephesians chapter 2, where emphasis is on God's grace and our faith. So I think that if we pick up some hints here of what Paul is saying, we'll recognize that the old temple was insufficient, not just for the Gentiles, but also for the Jews. Because he says here in verse 11, uh, he refers to the Jews as the circumcision, but he adds, which is made in the flesh by hands. In other words, uh, the argument is, remember, not by works. Physical circumcision was a work. Someone would present themselves to God as, as a circumcised person. God, you must accept me. I've done my part. 
And Jews felt they had access to the temple. But as we know, there's still a deficiency there without faith, right? You know, you must, not, not just that you can do, but you must believe. And the second clue here in our text is that Paul refers to Christ in verse 14 as our peace. He includes himself, a Jew, in the work of Christ that he is about to describe here in this passage. And then there's a third clue in verse 16 says that he, Jesus, might reconcile us both to God. In other words, this hostility that Paul is talking about is not just the hostility between Jew and Gentile, but between both of them and God. And there's a need for reconciliation. And it's not just a horizontal reconciliation, but it's a vertical reconciliation. Now, the point of all of this is that that temple, as glorious as it was, remember the disciples walking with Jesus, look how glorious this building is. As glorious as it was, was only a temporal pattern representing something greater that would come there was a there was a back then but there's a now which is the time of fulfillment how is this presented for us in the text well let's press on the temple under the old covenant was a pattern or a type and what we see now in the new covenant is christ the fulfillment christ the fulfillment. It's essential, brothers and sisters, that we recognize that the gospel, I've, I've used this illustration before, it's like a multifaceted stone. If you could imagine a, a giant ruby this big, that's a big ruby, that's been cut on every side, and every time you turn it, it looks different. It has a different sparkle. That's what the gospel is. We can't limit it to just one, one simple aspect. We could never plumb the depths of it, could we? And I say all that because we recognize here that it's not just the salvation of those who are dead in their trespasses and sins, but what Paul shows us here that there is an ongoing work of the gospel in the building up of the church, the new temple. This is why we consider the preaching of the gospel essential in the church, not just for the evangelization of the lost, but in the church. Because it is by this means that the Lord is building His church. And if you don't believe that, you should see that before we get to the end today. Paul makes this point by showing how Christ and the gospel are fulfilled in prophecy. And so let's consider now this prophecy. There's a prophecy quoted in our text. You may not have, have picked up on that. But it's found in verse 17. It's alluded to before that, but, but in verse 17, it's, it's more directly, which says, And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. Now, this quote is from Isaiah 57, verse 19, which says, Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord. Now, for us to understand why Paul would choose this text and quote it here we have to understand what's going on in isaiah 57 now think back with me for just a moment about the time where isaiah prophesied do you remember it was a very tumultuous time in israel's history isaiah ministered and prophesied there in the city of jerusalem but many had been carried away to exile 
Many of the inhabitants of, the Jeruz of Jerusalem were gone, taken away. And what does that mean? We can't come to the temple. We can't come and worship. We can't come and, and, and see the presence of God. God's not with us. And so we have Isaiah here predicting that there would be a, a message of restoration and revival. This exile, if you'll recall, had come about because of apostasy and idolatry. This was God's judgment, but yet there's a message of hope. And if we look in Isaiah 57, 15 and following, it says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place. And I take that as a reference to the temple. And also, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to receive the spirit of the lowly. Notice the emphasis there on the spirit in Isaiah's prophecy. Well, we see there that Isaiah has a message of reconciliation and restoration for those who are contrite. For those who repent and turn to the Lord. His message continues in Isaiah 57, 18. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore him, comfort him and his mourners. And so Isaiah's message is that despite the apostasy and idolatry and the destruction that was all around him when he preached this message, and God's judgment that had come upon them, that there would be a time of healing. It would be a time of restoration, a time of peace. And so this is where Paul is going here, and where he says in the text, peace, peace to the far and to the near. Now what is Isaiah's message? Well, it's the message of the cross. Now, how can that be? Well, this message of the cross is what brings, as I said, many things. The gospel is multifaceted, but here in our text, it brings unity. Brings unity to God's people. Uh, verse 14, it, it is the breaking down of the dividing wall of hostility. It is the end of trusting the law for righteousness, which is mentioned in our text. The creation of one new man and the reconciliation of one new man in one body. But how? What does he say? Through the cross. Through the cross. The cross is our message, brothers and sisters. There's no other way for the lost to come to the Lord. There's no other way for the Lord's church to be built. There's no other way for reconciliation for either us to God or for us to one another without the cross. We mentioned Isaiah's prophecy in, in chapter 53. You well know his prophecy in chapter 53. Many allusions in that prophecy to the cross and the suffering servant who we know is our Lord Jesus Christ. Ironically, it would take a most violent death, the most violent ever known to mankind to bring about this peace that Paul is talking about here. And so let's return to that idea for a moment, peace. This is what Isaiah predicted. 
This is what Paul says has been accomplished through the blood of Christ at the cross. The, the message of the gospel is a message of peace. But for who? Who are the players here? Well, at first glance, we might be inclined to think that the reference here to Isaiah is speaking to the Jews. And it's a message to those who have remained in Jerusalem, to those who are near, and those who have been carried away, those who are far off. But that's not how Paul interprets this, is it? No. He says in verse 13, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so what Paul is saying here is that Isaiah is referring in his prophecy not just to Jews, but to Gentiles who are far away. And you might think, wow, this church in Ephesus, this is a long way from Jerusalem. Don't they need to go to Jerusalem to have access to God? Don't they need to go to the temple? Paul says that Isaiah here is referring to the Gentile believers there at the church in Ephesus who have been brought near. That, that terminology there is temple language. It's inclusive language. Paul includes himself. As I, as I mentioned, verse 16, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, killing the hostility. And of course, that hostility refers to the, to the physical wall and all the ramifications of it, this, this separation of Jew and Gentile. It doesn't exist any longer. Isaiah predicts a time when the Lord will dwell in a new temple with a new people. And they all have access to Him. No more alienation, no more separation, no more hostility, but rather reconciliation and peace. Not only with God, but with one another. A new temple where there is peace, the peace of Christ, the one who is peace personified, right? Paul says, he himself is our peace. This is what Jesus is doing. He's building his temple. Are you starting to, to get an idea now of how this is so glorious? This is not something that's just similar to the old temple. It's better. It's the fulfillment of that which was the pattern, the type. Imagine, if you would, this is a great illustration that I got from listening to Greg Beale this week. If you had something that was a representation, he talked about traveling, and when he would travel, he would have a picture of his wife. And when he'd go away, he'd pull out that picture and he'd see his wife and he'd think about her and he'd miss her and he'd pray for her. And then he'd eventually go back home. Now imagine you go back home if you're in that situation and there you are and your wife is in the same room with you, but you, no, I've got the picture. I'll, I'll look at the picture. I'll, I'll pray for, for you as I look to the picture. Who would do that? None of us, right? We don't, we don't need the type. We've got the real thing. 
And so think about the ramifications of this, brothers and sisters, of some who say that there's got to be a new physical temple built that really undermines the beauty and glory of the Lord Jesus building his temple now, does it not? I mean, what's the Lord doing? <laughs> some would say, well, it's good. It's nice, but it's secondary to this new physical temple that's going to be built one day. I'm astounded by such. And I reject it. <laughs> Paul says, I'm doing what I'm doing. I'm suffering for your glory. The glory of the temple of the Lord Jesus that he's building. The fulfillment of the pattern, the type. And with the coming of Christ, we must recognize that this is what Jesus is doing. He's building his church just as he promised, right? He made that promise. And he's keeping his word. And so we, we see the temple as pattern and we see Christ as fulfillment. But one final consideration this morning as we conclude the new temple. The church as the new temple. Jesus declared in Matthew 16, 18, I will build my church. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 9, Paul writes, For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Interesting, isn't it? Or we might say, which Paul says here in our text, God's household. God's household. Now, uh, when you hear that word, what do you think? You see it there in verse 19? So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. When you see that word, you probably picture a house, don't you? A building. A home that people live in. And this is what is being built through the gospel message. A place where those in the family are not on the outside looking in, but they're brought in. And this family, what a beautiful family it is. Jews and Gentiles, every nation, language, people, tongue. The Lord is gathering them from all over. Through the preaching of the gospel, he's building his church. <laughs> I particularly like the fact that, that Paul, it, 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 this is so emphatic here in the text. He's continually using this language. You see there, the first word in verse 20 is the word built. That's, that's the picture that he wants us to have, isn't it? That, that, that the Lord Jesus is building. You've ever driven by a construction site, uh, had a home built in your neighborhood, you go by it and you see little by little there are more things added on, right? I did construction for a number of years. We always started with a slab, nothing. And then we'd put a little bit on and a little bit more and a little bit more. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's, he's building a building, not a physical building, but a spiritual one, a lasting one, an eternal one, one that is glorious. Any physical building is going to come down. Eventually, it's going to come down. But not this one, Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.1. We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in 
the heavens. This temple is heavenly, right? I mean, you're looking around, you're saying, yeah, but there's physical because we're physical people and we're gathered in a physical place. But we've got to get past these physical dimensions and recognize that something spiritual is taking place here. You, as you recall, me preaching a few weeks ago from Colossians chapter 3, have been caught up with the Lord Jesus and seated with him in the heavenly realms. Paul makes that reference in Ephesians 2. What we're talking about this morning is eternal. It's heavenly. This is what Jesus is doing. Uh, if you're going to build a building, where do you begin? Well, you have to have a solid foundation, right? When I was involved in construction, we, we'd start with a concrete slab, and that concrete slab would have footings around the edges, sometimes a foot deep, sometimes more, depending on the type of soil. But that foundation wasn't going anywhere. I mean, maybe an earthquake, but... You understand, right? And I lived down on the Gulf Coast where we had hurricanes. We have tornadoes here. Sometimes you drive by and you, you see damage after a storm. And you might just see some shingles or, or, or you might see more. The, the whole roof is gone. Maybe some walls have been caved in. But you don't ever see that foundation move, do you? It's always there. Lots of times people can rebuild on the same foundation. Tear off all the part that's been destroyed and damaged, and okay, but we've still got the foundation. The church has to have a sure foundation, and what is that foundation, verse 20? Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Well, what is that? Is that the actual people? There are some traditions who hold to that. <laughs> but that's not what... Paul is referring to is he what does he mean what is the foundation of the apostles and prophets it's the gospel it's the message that they preached Jesus said I will build my church uh, back in Matthew 16 and the church would be built on the declaration the confession from Peter you are the Christ And we know that he is referring to the message because he says here in the next phrase, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Now, we don't really build like this anymore. We still have foundations, but in their day, they would lay a cornerstone. This was the largest part of the foundation. Every other part of the foundation will be tied to that. And that's where the building would begin. And everything would go up from there. That's the picture. We've mentioned this multifaceted aspect of the gospel, myriad ramifications of the gospel. One very important one is that the church is built on the gospel, and because it is built on the gospel, it will stand. It will last. A church without the gospel as its foundation, without Jesus as its cornerstone, is destined to fall but not the Lord's church. It's eternal. Does everybody understand what eternal means? <laughs> One final word regarding the Lord's church. Built on the gospel, an eternal church. But I want us to see here that it is a place of unity and holiness. If you will, look again at verse 21, in whom the whole structure being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. The Lord's church is united, and it is holy. 
Now, again, we can picture in our minds a physical building emerging from a foundation. And when you have that, well, what do you do? Well, you start from that foundation and you build up, right? You can't put anything up here without it being supported. We have that foundation of the gospel and Jesus is our cornerstone and everything is built on that. And we're all united together, but most importantly, we're united to him. Every brick is joined together. Every piece of wood joined together. Uh, brothers and sisters, we have to have each other if we're going to exist. Every person who's a part of this church is essential. This picture here of a building shows you that if you take a part out, what happens? Well, things might get loose. Things might start to fall apart. We're hearing a lot in our day about racial reconciliation and how the church is going to bring that about. Well, I have to tell you that if there's any other means attempted to bring about racial reconciliation apart from the gospel, it's going to fail. What else, what other means could there be? Apart from the good news of the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus and Him building His church. Any other attempt is a man-made philosophy. You, you either stand on the gospel or you fall on something else. There can be no other foundation. And the gospel brings unity. So that the Lord's unified church is a holy temple. That is, it's unique. It's not like anything else. This gathering that we have here today is unique from everything else. It's a holy gathering. Remember when Isaiah went into the temple? He saw God and he was overwhelmed. This holy God comes and inhabits his temple today, brothers and sisters. And he's brought peace through the Lord Jesus Christ. We're no longer under his wrath. <laughs> it's a, it's a mind-boggling thing to complicate the presence of God, isn't it? That's why we come into God's presence confessing our sin and, and hearing the declaration of pardon from his word. But the Lord is here, and that was the whole point of the temple right so that you could see a physical representation of something in which the presence of God came into but do we not have the same thing absolutely we do look at verse 22 being built together into a dwelling place for God by the spirit so let me ask you again is this a glorious thing the Lord is doing here today I hope you will affirm that. But I also want to ask if you are a part of it. A part of what the Lord is doing in building His church. This is it. This is it. You get to the very last part of the Bible, the end of Revelation. This is what John sees coming down. This, this holy city, this temple. That's us.
And may the Lord continue to work to build up his church through his wonderful good news of the gospel. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come before you now and we can make no boast in ourselves. We boast, we glory only in that the Lord Jesus is doing something wonderful among us in building his church. And we're thankful for the glorious presence of our God and Father here with us. Lord, please continue your work now. We pray for the sanctification of your church. We pray for the protection of your church. We pray, Father, that you would continue to use us for the propagation of the gospel to bring your chosen ones into your church. We pray this through Christ our Lord. Amen.